Right, Harry, and welcome to a new episode of the On The Head podcast. And today we have another special guest with us. Uh, we have Match of the Day BT Sport and World Cup commentator John Roder on the show. Um, John, thank you for your time today. I know you're a busy man, so I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Um, I'm going to ask you this one first because um, we had this conversation, the three of us, a short while ago about favourite commentaries and which ones we've liked the most over the last over the last few years. Um, have you got a bit of football commentary that that resonates with you and that you love listening to? And you, you can choose your own as well if you like. <laughs> uh, hello, chaps. It's a pleasure to be uh, to be with you today. Um, favourite bit of commentary. Um, there's quite a lot of different bits of commentary. Certainly some uh, commentators are more associated with uh, lines th than others. If you think of the most, uh, the most famous Premier League moment, it's got to be Martin Tyler's Aguero. Manchester City are still alive here. Balotelli. What is important about that, and what I think illustrates was that at that time it was a supreme bit of commentary, was that Martin anticipated that that ball was going to come across to Sergio Aguero. The Aguero went up in inflection, you know, because it was one of the most dramatic moments ever. And then he said nothing. He said absolutely nothing. And you can actually, if you watch it on, um, on the Internet or something, you just count the seconds before Martin Tyler actually says anything, because the art of television commentary is to add something to the pictures. Now, the pictures at that moment were incredible. You know, you've got the coach going mad. You've got the players going mad. You've got the spectators going mad. They cut to a shot of Joe Hart going mad at the other end. And Martin Tyler says nothing because you don't need to say anything there. Your words as a television commentator should accompany the pictures, enhance the pictures, but the pictures come first. And then Martin comes out with the line, I swear you'll never see anything like this again. What he'd given himself was a bit of thinking time. And that thinking time allowed him to come out with another really good line. In terms of me, um, on YouTube, on FIFA TV, there's commentary. There's the whole game of the 2015 Women's World Cup final in Vancouver between uh, the United States and Japan, which I did for the world. Um, so goodness knows how many millions of people were watching that. Uh, the USA scored after about two minutes and I did exactly what Martin did. Uh, I said who scored um, and then I said nothing. Johnson is forward. Brian is there as well. Rapino's driven ball in towards Lloyd. What a start for the United States. Carly Lloyd, the captain. A self-satisfied smile on the face of the coach. Much, much more than that on the faces of the thousands of USA fans inside PC Place. Because the director was cutting around the stadium to all these amazing shots of literally somebody dressed up as a, the American Eagle. Um, people with the stars and stripes painted on their uh, faces. Just, just people going nuts because Vancouver, being so close to America, was 
the 51st state of America that afternoon. It was full of Americans. Um, so I said nothing. And that was literally the same as Martin um, for that Aguero moment, because you didn't need to add anything. Um, on radio, it's very different because on radio, your voice is painting a picture for the listener. On the television, the pictures are there. You should only add to it. Richie Benno, the great cricket commentator, said only say something if you can add something to the pictures that are there. And I think that that is a mantra that I live by. Uh, I'm not sure that some others do, um, but it's certainly a mantra that I live by. Is that sort of a philosoph uh, philosophy on TV then, that sometimes less is more? Sometimes you don't need to say anything. The pictures just kind of speak for themselves a little bit? The pictures should speak for themselves. I mean, I don't like... Uh, certain commentators who have done their research and will make darn sure that you know as the viewer that they've done their research so they'll go you know here's Smith with the throw uh, who started his career at uh, Gillingham before a loan spell at Leighton Orient and then a couple of spells at uh, Hartlepool in uh, non-league football he's taking a throw he's taking a throw you know we don't need to hear all that there is you do I do wonder whether I'm turning into a bit of an old fuddy-duddy, but I just think that uh, some people talk too much on the television. I really do. Um, you know, there, there is definitely a case of less is more. Um, so we'll talk about your astronomical rise over the last 27 years in, in a second, but I want to talk about the start of your career first, because before you went freelance, uh, you actually worked as staff in, in the BBC, right? Um, yeah. So how did, you, how did you get into that? Was it just a case of, like you've told us a few times, just get in there and and take any opportunity that comes take any opportunity that comes i wanted to be a music journalist i wanted to be a disc jockey i wanted to play the latest alternative uh, music uh, this was in the early uh, to mid 80s uh, there was a radio station at the university where i went to i'd had lots of articles uh, published in the local press from where i was from all about music reviewing gigs uh, i went to university there was a radio station there i sat behind the microphone and i felt at home playing music it was absolutely marvelous and before I left university I got a job at a radio station in Hampshire which is where I'm from and that was a job that was literally the dog's body job the equivalent of what we would now call a, a runner but literally tidied the newsroom makes tea fetched sandwiches greeted guests at reception tidied up afterwards um but it was a start and I was in and because I was in the sports editor there said, do you want to work on Saturdays and earn an extra 10 pounds? 10 pounds. Yeah, absolutely. Because in the mid 80s, you know, 10 quid, that was great. Um, so I started working on sport and uh, they said, oh, yeah, you, you know, you love your sport, don't you? I went, yep, absolutely. Um, and to cut a long story short, um, a circular came round from British Telecom, surprisingly enough, because I still work for BT now. Uh, and they were launching uh, a service called Club Call which was a premium rate telephone service um, where you dialed a number, an uh, 0898, and it was something like, you know, dial Sheffield Wednesday club call on 0898 12 11 66 for all the latest news from Hillsborough. Uh, and it was something like 40p a minute, and people would dial this up from the offices. This is pre-internet, so, you know, the internet didn't exist. And I know this might be hard for, for younger listeners to comprehend. Uh, it didn't exist. So people would ring this up from their office and listen to the, to this thing. And you had to deals with the clubs and the clubs were in on it at a cut of the money. So I went to work uh, for that in London. Uh, off the back of that, after a year doing all sorts of things there, I went to local radio in Coventry, uh, worked in commercial radio and BBC radio in Coventry, then went to Radio 5. So worked on network sports for a couple of years and then went freelance. So I've been doing uh, broadcasting full time since 1985. 
and sport pretty much since 1986 and tv commentary pretty much solely tv commentary for the last 22 23 years something like that no no more long than that 24 years something like that um so from what i read you've you've you got kind of your first i guess big break on on radio one presenting uh, a sports show um i guess this is no, the first... no, that, no that's not not quite right rob um i mean i was working as a freelance at the bbc and they decided that radio one needed uh, the breakfast sports bulletins so um I was offered that on, on a job share basis with uh, a young broadcaster that the BBC had just taken on called Claire Balding. And Claire's obviously gone on to do great things. And Claire and I shared that job. Um, so it was three mornings a week or two mornings a week. Um, and that wasn't necessarily a big break because I was already in there. I was already doing football matches for Radio 5 and things like that. But it was a whole new audience. And you said your name four times a morning on a program that had nine, 10 million listeners. Uh, nowadays, if you listen to the radio, it'll be, you know, here's the sport with Tom. Well, who's Tom? Here's the sport with Jake. Well, well who's Jake? Um, you know, at the end of every bulletin, I said, you know, I'm John Roda in the sort of Radio One style sort of thing. And, you know, you got your name known. Um, it was amazing for the profile. I was also working at Sky at the time. So I'd literally finished the shift at the BBC at half past one and go to Sky and do some voiceover work there and things like that. Um, that was a quite quite an amazing period, but it's it's just it was just a period as being a freelance. Um, freelance life is not for everybody. Uh, doors open, doors close, doors get shut firmly in your face, and then another one opens. So, um, you know, I have colleagues of mine and friends of mine who came through local radio at the same time as, as I have, um, who are staff. At places and they wouldn't be freelance for all the tea in china um because they like the security of a regular um, monetary check i love the not the unpredictability because that that's not great i love the freedom to be able to work for lots of different clients unfortunately lots of different clients have been kind enough to to employ me to work on various things um in 1997 i believe uh espn uh, Meridian TV and Channel 4, that those opportunities kind of, would you say that they they opened up for you? Uh, at, at that time, it was like uh, like, a, like a culmination of, of a lot of years of, of hard work. Obviously, you had already been working for a few years in in, in, in commentary. Um, but that to me stood out as something that was like, wow, I'm, I've, I've made it onto, onto TV commentary. Now, did it feel that way for you or, or was not, it just another, no. another step? No, not really. I mean, I was helped by the fact that the, the age that I am um, happened to coincide with satellite television coming along um and so you had a sort of a few uh sports channels that were trying to make uh, their way so i worked for a few different sports channels that don't exist uh, anymore and i had all sorts of opportunities to work for uh, different sports channels and different things because lots of people were trying to find a way of uh, covering sport because in the in you know in the mid to late 90s it, it was the thing to thing to do so i did all sorts of um, different channels and things and at one stage i think i was working for about seven or eight different tv channels at the same time sort of thing you know um and the other thing about satellite television is that there was the development of what's called um, the world feed so uh, a competition would have an english language commentary and anybody around the world who had bought the rights to that uh, event could use that english language commentary should they wish uh, and I did quite a lot of that for uh, various things. But um, I think the main thing was that um, as a freelance and as a true freelance, you have to have a reputation of being able to turn up, do the job, not need any 
uh, molly coddling, if you like. You just turn up, you do it, you do it very well, uh, you invoice and you go home. You know, that is that 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 is the essence of being a true freelance. And the best thing that ever happens as a freelance is if you get a new client and then they book you again because that shows that they're quite happy with with, with, with what you have uh, what you've done for them and I'm quite lucky insofar as uh, most of my clients are pretty long-standing clients now which which is great um let's talk about Syria shall we um because you've done some commentary for that as well um and, and I was I was watching a couple of a couple of commentaries where you've commentated on some of the biggest names in 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 world football players like Totti, Del Piero, Shevchenko. Italy at that time obviously were were, were still a, a world leader in in football. Um, what was that like? Just you know, introducing those players and and commentating on them, thinking I, I I would be almost like starstruck in a way. I wasn't there. I wasn't in Italy. Um, the thing about the Channel 4 commentaries, and I went on to do Serie A from Channel 4. I did the middle of the night games in Channel 4, so we actually did them on a Monday. Um, there's a little secret about that. Um, myself and a very good friend of mine, Kev Keatings, who's a well-known uh, freelance, uh, Kev and I used to share a job for ESPN Star in Asia on Saturday nights. We used to do the live Serie A games, which went out in Asia. And on Monday, I would do two games for Channel 4 from the weekend. They'd already taken place. And every other week, one of those games that I would do for Channel 4, I'd already done live on the Saturday night for ESPN Star in Asia. So that was great. Uh, you had to resist saying, um, you know, oh, I think they could break away and score here um, when you knew darn well that that's exactly what was going to happen. Um, Channel 4 was, was interesting. And then the rights for Serie A went all over the place. They went to Eurosport and they went to Bravo. Uh, and then they went to ESPN, and then they came to BT, and I kind of followed it a little bit, and I still do Serie A now, I still occasionally do the world uh, feed for um, for Serie A games, but not as regularly as I used to do, I used to literally do three or four games a week, and it was a golden age of Italian football, and it was it was absolutely magnificent to do it, I must have done hundreds of Italian games over the years, but I've never actually been to a Serie A game, because that is done off tube, and that's, that's another thing of um, commentary. You're either the, at the stadium or you're uh, off tube, which is basically sitting in a, in a, in a room in a studio doing it off a monitor. Um, so sometime after that match of the day uh, comes knocking. Um, did you have to sort of pinch yourself in a way when, when you sent your tape off and then you discovered that you were going to be a commentator on the biggest football show in the world? Yeah, it's in the iconic programme, isn't it? Um, well, I was already working for the BBC. I was working for Final Score and I was doing Serie A for Eurosport in this country and I was doing various things abroad uh, as well. Um, so they knew I was a commentator and I sort of put my hat in the ring because basically what happened in the olden days, there were only a few Premier League games that had a multi-camera uh, OB coverage. From 2004, every single game was going to be covered with a multi-camera full OB because every single game was going to be shown live abroad. So obviously, if you've got 10 games over the weekend, you need 10 commentators or, well, you need at least half a dozen, seven or eight. Um, and we were actually on holiday in Italy at the time. And we'd gone to the beach for the day and I came back to the hotel room with my wife and there was a message on my mobile saying, um, you know, hey, it's so-and-so from the BBC, can you give us a call? And I said to my wife, oh, I'll give him a call when we get back in, um, you know, at the end of the week, you know, four days time. And she said, don't you dare 
this could be really important. I said, well, you know, this will cost me about 78p a minute to call back home. She went, <laughs> and she went, no, you're going to ring them now. It could be important. And um, and I was on the phone for about half an hour to, to somebody. And basically they said, we'd like you to be part of the team. Um, and it was, wow. You know, to do one match, to do one commentary for Match of the Day was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, I'm just about finishing my 17th season with Match of the Day. So, you know, it's... It's been an extraordinary privilege um, to be uh, part of the team, the commentary team, um, although I've still not yet met, not actually yet met Gary Lineker. Really? You've never met him? Nope. <laughs> never wow. met him. <laughs> Hopefully that can happen soon. Um, obviously, in that time as well, when you've been working for the BBC, you've been at World Cups, Confederation Cups, uh, Copa America tournament, tournaments, uh, as well, obviously not for the BBC. Um, yeah. Uh, you've done obviously you've done so much in your career. Um, could you have imagined, say, when you started out working at the BBC, you know, getting the sandwiches, getting the coffees, that you would have done this much in in your career? No, absolutely not. Um, for my fiftieth birthday, my mum uh, actually made a book of an exercise book that I'd done when I was five and a half during the nineteen seventy World Cup. So that just sort of shows you my age. And it's got a picture of me on the front uh, clad in my football kit of the late 1960s. Um, and it's got exercise drawings of me. Um, you know, Jeff Astle scored a goal for England and England won 1-0 against Romania. You know, and it's got all these little stick men with huge bodies and massive studs coming out of the bottom of their, of their feet. Um, so I was obsessed with football from an early age. Um, but... In answer to your question, no, of course, I couldn't imagine this. And as I sort of turn you back to what I said earlier, uh, I wanted to be a music disc jockey. I wanted to play the latest alternative music, you know, from jingly jangly guitar bands. Um, so actually ending up being as a football commentator wasn't something that was ever in a career plan. And I don't think it's been a career as such. It's been a series of happy accidents. Um, and, you know, when people email you and say, would you like to, um, you know, go to the World Cup and provide the world feed on behalf of FIFA. Uh, yes, um, certainly wouldn't. I've been very lucky to go to uh, a number of World Cups now, both for men's and women's. As I say I've done the finals as well. Um, Copper America in in the United States was astonishing. And doing the doing the underage tournaments as well is great. I do the Toulon tournament in the south of France pretty much every May. Um, under 20 World Cups. I've been to places like South Korea uh, and things like that for that. So, you know, I've basically been to most corners of the world and fingers crossed I'll uh, tick off the the last continent um, if I'm selected, of course, to go to the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand in 2023, because that would be every continent done in terms of doing live games from the stadium somewhere in the world. That would be magnificent. That's incredible. <laughs> Have you got a favourite continent so far that, that you've been to? Um, no, not, not really. I mean... It's a very, very fortunate uh, experience to be asked to go to an event abroad on behalf of somebody that is going to pay you to work there. Um, you know, most people would would have loved to have just go to one World Cup. You know, I've been to loads. Um, most people would love to sort of travel abroad and see uh, football. Um, and I've been lucky enough to be paid to go there. Um, I mentioned South Korea. That was an amazing place. Japan was an amazing place. Um, so was Brazil. Um, I remember doing a piece for Talk Sport 
on the phone and I was literally standing beneath the statue of Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro uh, when they rang and said, um, don't suppose you come on air to talk about um, the Confederations Cup, which I was at at the time. I went, yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm literally doing a piece on my on my phone from, from Brazil. The United States was amazing. Vancouver in Canada was just astonishing. Six weeks in Vancouver. If I could move there tomorrow, I would. It's an amazing place. Um, so no, the, the, the actual joy of traveling is, is wonderful, but it's not, it's not about, uh, me. It's about the team. When you're working on a, on a world feed production from a world cup or something like that, um, what it is, is the, the pictures, uh, are shown everywhere. So they're, they're, they're shown by, you know, they're made by one company. It goes everywhere. So whether you're watching in New Zealand or the Antarctic or Uruguay or Norway, the pictures of the match are exactly the same. Um, and that's all done by one central company who I'm employed by. Um, so there's 100, 120 people on each production team, camera people, sound people, uh, EVS people, uh, electricians. And there's again, there's about another 100 people based at each stadium. So you're a bit like a touring rock band in a way. You know, you, you travel around in Russia, for example, we had about 11 internal flights. So there's, you know, 70 of us getting on those double-decker bus to go to the airport and then you're met at the airport and taken to the stadium and things and the people that actually do all the technical work work far harder than I do because I just do a bit of prep the day before you know go to some media conferences well actually I do a lot of prep the day before um I go and do the game but they might be there for sort of 14 hours a day uh, setting everything up and things. It's a military operation working on a on a massive tournament. I'm a very, very small cog because if I wasn't there, I don't think many people would necessarily miss the commentary. But if the pictures weren't there, people would really miss that. And that's the difference between radio and television. In television, you're far less important as a commentator because in radio, you are not only the person that is describing the action, but in radio, somebody is painting a picture in their head through what you are saying on television, they can see the picture. So, you know, there's a huge difference uh, there. But yeah, the commentator is, is a very small part of, of a huge team. And it's important to remember that. For us, obviously, we're just getting getting started really on, on our sort of broadcasting journey, I suppose. You know, we've learned a lot from you over, over the last few months. Um, when you were starting out, particularly in commentary, did you ever feel like you kind of had to go to, to other people, even if it was on a, a, a different TV station and just ask for ask for tips from them. Did you um, did you kind of feel like you, you wanted to learn from them or, or was it just no, go in there and, no. and learn on the job? It's learn on the job. Um, and this is where it helps having done years of radio commentary because you, 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 you actually hone your art of identifying who has the ball and painting a picture with radio. It's far easier to go from radio to television. And you can always tell the people who have just gone from radio to television because they talk too much, because they describe what's happening. So on TV, if somebody's making a run down the right wing, uh, all I need to go is Smith. Somebody on radio will go, Smith, coming down the right wing, whips it in with his right foot. And you go, don't need to know that. Don't need to know that. Um, so no, and in terms of tips and advice, I've never really been given any, to be perfectly honest. Um, in TV in particular, it's a case of if you've done all right, you'll get booked again. If you haven't done all right, um, you won't get booked uh, again. I've got lots of experience now, which I'm, you know, really happy to be passing on to the students at, uh, at Marge on, on the uh, journalism course. Uh, I think the big tip 
the big big tip that i would always give to anybody no matter what facet of sports journalism they were they were going into is be a nice person don't be up your own backside with your own self-importance because you're not um be nice to everybody because you never know when uh, an opportunity might uh, present itself to you and they'll go oh yeah that 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 that, that fella fred bloggs or or that girl sheila smith she was she was really good she was really keen let's get in touch yeah so be nice to people and if you're doing a game have a strong introduction which is again is just journalism isn't it it's a strong introduction if you were writing a story your first two paragraphs should sell the story uh, in a football match you should have a strong introduction um you know to set the scene particularly if you've got no presenters or anything around it um you know you are the person who sets the scene who puts that particular match into into a context of of what it means uh, and even if it for you it isn't very important for somebody that is the most important game of the day maybe the most important game of the week so you might be doing um you know live to air for bt for example uh, eintracht frankfurt against cologne which you know is going to get a reasonable audience but it's not going to get a huge audience but those people who are watching are watching for a reason and so therefore they've chosen to tune in it's really imperative that you respect their choice to do so and give that game the respect and the attached importance to it that it deserves you know you mustn't ever think oh well i'm only doing this game you know and, and i'll pick up some money at the end of it no it's an important game and those people that are watching and listening to you deserve your full attention uh, and so you have to do your very best to do every single broadcast because you're only as good as your last one um jake and tom by the way obviously uh, we haven't really included you guys yet is there any 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 questions you guys have got so far with the amount of listeners that you have, you know, World Cup finals, millions of listeners, how do you sort of go into the booth? And, and I imagine there's some degree of nerves going into that. You should always be slightly apprehensive. You should never be overconfident. Um, there's an old saying, it's almost a cliche, but it's true. Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. So do your homework. Um, when I come when I go to a new stadium for the first time uh, there are a couple of things that I will always uh, do if I go there say the day before the actual game uh, I will go and find my position because I do not wish to uh, be finding that on the day of the game I would also go and find the nearest uh, toilet because you know you want to be able to nip out at half time uh, and go to the loo if you need to um, and just have a little map of the land and I think the thing is with it with any with any game as i say if you fail to prepare you will prepare to fail so on a very good game 90 percent of the information that you prepare won't get used you know if it's a really really dull nil nil you might be mining the depths for for sort of a bit of information about somebody or other but a really good game will just take care of itself you know, as long as you identify people correctly, and if you don't know the goal scorer, um, there's all sorts of ways that you get around that, uh, and you will probably hear that if you're watching a live game and you don't, and the commentator doesn't know who scored because they will say something, um, oh, what a time for Team X to score, you know, just before the break, and they're in their head they're going, who the blimmin' heck was that? Because you know, if you've got say six players going up for it and somebody's got the final touch but you're not quite sure, um. You can't really go ahead and say, oh, well, that, that was Smith. And it's actually blogs, 
you know um so you just wait you just wait on it um sunday for example at crystal palace the winning goal um the young lad who scored it Tarek mitchell might have touched his his arm it actually sort of came off the shoulder chest area um so you know you have to say well VAR are going to have a look at it they do have a look at every goal um VAR may have a look at this and they had a quick look and they went no that's fine it's a goal um and that's changed things a lot VAR that really has changed things a, a lot um you try and give it the full welly if it's a fantastic goal but always in the back of your mind you're thinking mm, they're going to check this for something um so it has changed things quite quite differently in that way I was thinking do you have to do you find yourself having to pull back a little bit when when a goal goes in because as you say you're always thinking well there's always a there's always a chance it's going to get ruled out now no because you've got to react to it haven't you you know in a way you've got to react to it uh it should all be natural you know anybody who sort of um sounds as if they're using pre-prepared lines and things i mean that's cringeworthy in my opinion um so you've got to react um naturally and if you go, wow, what a goal, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, oh, VAR having a look at this. There's a possible offside here, you know, and that is exactly the same emotion that, you know, somebody watching at home or watching in the stadium will feel because they'll go, oh, great, great goal. Oh, hang on. This might be ruled out. So, you're, you know, in terms of a graph, you've sort of peaked a bit and then you're coming down um, and then you sort of plateau for a little bit while it's been checked and then you might peak again when the goal is actually given. Um, no, you have to react in a totally natural way, I think. And that's where the best lines come from. You know, um, they think it's all over. It is now. Wasn't pre-scripted by uh, Kenneth Walson home in the 1966 FA Cup final. The crazy gang of beating the culture club wasn't necessarily pre-scripted by John Motson in the 1988 FA Cup final. Um, there are some people who I hear and I think, oh, you've, you've, you've tried to crowbar that into your commentary, you know, some sort of pun or thing and you just think oh, leave it out um i've got a question from a just a footballing standpoint um as as a football fan which you know as we all are what would be you know your firstly what team do you support oh, that's a, that's i'm not answering what... that no i'm not answering that <laughs> they're, they're not in the premier league and they don't have any real possibility of getting into the premier league but with the Super League having hopefully died a death, at least we can still dream yes, of, of getting there. You know. um, what is your favourite stadium to go to as a commentator uh, and then as a fan? And then what is your favourite footballing moment in just in general? <sighs> Do you mean f- footballing moment that I've actually been working on as opposed um, to... Not maybe as working on. I, I just mean like, you know, as a fan or as working on. Yeah, I think the thing is the, the thing is when you when you start working in football, you actually watch football on the television or you watch football in the stadium a little bit differently. I actually find it quite difficult to be in a stadium and not working. Um, yeah, it's yeah. kind of like a bit of an alien environment. It's a bit like um, uh, I don't know a cinema director going down the Odeon to watch the latest release. They'll probably watch it in their own private cinema sort of thing. Um, my favourite stadium. Um, it depends really. There are many journalists who pick their favorite stadium on the quality of the pre-match food <laughs> chelsea and manchester city are by far and away magnificent if you're doing an evening game at chelsea have a light breakfast and don't eat lunch it is absolutely superb same at manchester city um 
I mentioned Crystal Palace a moment ago. I love going there. It's a great atmosphere because it's an old-fashioned stadium. I love going to Everton. You know, Goodison is antiquated, um, but it has an atmosphere, particularly at night. Um, you know, you go to the Lego Bowls, um, which of which there are many, um, and some of them are rather soulless places. Having said that, some of the newer stadiums, you know, like Leicester, which is a very similar stadium to that at Southampton or Derby or Middlesbrough, you know, they're all built basically on the same model. Leicester is a magnificent place to go to. Um, and obviously they've had a fantastic uh, week this week. So there are all sorts of different things. I like going to new stadiums. I like going to new stadiums abroad, you know. Um, I'm not sure I should say this in public, but I'm going to anyway. There is the people who, who travel abroad to cover World Cups We'd quite like a World Cup in England, but we prefer it if it was abroad. <laughs> because, you know, to go to a World Cup game at Villa Park, well, I'll go to Villa Park, <laughs> you know, most my, my season sort of thing. I'd, I'd rather go to the Houston Texans um, Astrodome or something or the Sapporo Stadium in Japan or something. Um, you know, so, you know, although a World Cup here would be absolutely fantastic, it would be really great and it would be great to work on it. Um, you know, you, You'd kind of like want to go abroad a bit. In terms of my favourite football event, um, there are quite a few. Uh, I mentioned the World Cup final of 2015, the Women's World Cup final. Uh, that was just a magnificent, magnificent uh, day. Um, it was one of the few times that I absolutely felt that I completely nailed it. You should never be 100% happy, but I was happy in the high 90%. For that game it's available on youtube on the fifa tv channel uh, with my commentary on it and i'm, I'm really quite proud of of all that because um because it was fantastic and i did love at the world cup in russia i did love doing spain three portugal three in sochi oh, with the ronaldo game. um remember where i was watching that game at my mate's house i remember that one well the thing is about yeah the, the ronaldo free kick you know he he puts it over the wall and it goes in the net and uh, all i said was genius absolute genius ronaldo oh genius absolute genius going back to what i said earlier you didn't need to say anything else you really I remember it, I, yeah i remember it come up on twitter now um yeah yeah, I remember that commentary. It went quite viral, didn't it? I'm not sure whether that one did or whether Steve Wilson's, who was doing it for the BBC, because Steve came out with a pretty memorable line as uh, as as well. Because obviously, if I'm doing a game for the World Feed uh, at a World Cup, it's not going out on the BBC or ITV here because they're using their own commentators. Um, but yeah, it, it can go a little bit viral. Um, <laughs> the same thing in that match, and the reason why I'm not. Uh, entirely happy with my performance in that game was that we were very high up and a substitute came on for Spain who looked like it was number 11 the number the number 17 he actually was but the seven was kind of almost indistinguishable from a, a one and so I thought the number 11 was on and so for five minutes this player had a couple of chances and then he came on from the bench five minutes later so I'd, I'd, I'd misidentified him for five minutes which was not very not very good but that that happens we're human we you know we make mistakes um but part of the joy of commentary is you know imparting your enthusiasm and your joy to your viewer or to your listener you uh you mentioned cristiano ronaldo there uh i'm going back to the, the debate that everyone has is it him or Lionel messi for you can i sit on the fence and say aren't we fortunate to have <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the safe answer isn't it <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean i i i've seen a lot of messi i've actually seen a lot of messi in the flesh 
as well. A lot more of Messi in the flesh than um, Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, Lionel Messi is amazing. Uh, I remember doing a friendly game. Argentina were playing somebody or other at West Ham's old ground. And I was in the tunnel and we had strict instructions, you know, that if Messi walked past, you know, you, you, you weren't to sort of approach him or anything. And I thought, well, that's totally unprofessional anyway. I wouldn't do that. You know, you don't, you're not there as a fan. You're there as a, as a, as a, as a working journalist. And he walked past and he, and he nodded and I nodded back and that was it. So I've met, I've, I've met Lionel Messi. Well, not quite. <laughs> but, you know. I, I'd take that. I'd so take that. You've got closer than we have. Yeah. <laughs> um, You've done over 60 commentaries this season, over 60 the season before. Um, it's usually about 100, but with the tournaments going, uh, mm. you know, last summer was the first. Both my girls were born on in mid-June on the same day, um, and I hadn't been at home for their birthdays for about the last 11 years because uh, so really? I'd always been abroad sort of thing. Um, yeah, so the number is down because of the tournaments um, that have been down and also because of the fact that the Premier League fixtures, etc., are kind of like spread out all over the weekend. So there's not four or five going on on a Saturday at the same time. Um, yeah, I, I usually aim to do about 100 uh, in, a, in, a, in a calendar year, um, but that won't happen in 2020 and it probably won't happen in 2021 either. Yeah, so I, I was going to say doing that many, um, do, do you kind of feel the weight of that, that kind of the, the traveling around and, and being away from home? Or do you see it more as an opportunity? You know, I get to do so many games a season and it's just it's just what you love to do, obviously. Yeah, I mean, think of it, turn it around the other way. Um, I've been, you know, amongst the very, very fortunate small group of people who've been allowed into stadiums over the last season, yeah. uh, which is a tremendous privilege. Um don't forget, of course, as well, that uh, a proportion of those games are what I mentioned earlier. They're off tube. So I'm not actually going to Germany. I'm not actually going to South America to do a World Cup qualifier between Ecuador and Uruguay, um, you know, because the air miles would be great. Um, but I'm not actually there. Um, all the games in this country are pretty much on site. Uh, so there is a lot of traveling. And... That does mean getting home sometimes at ridiculous o'clock in the in the morning and having to be up again uh, to be in somewhere else at 10 o'clock the next morning. Or it may mean that, you know, I'm able to take the dog for a walk on the beach in the morning. Um, the best view of London, I find, is in the rearview mirror. I don't like li living. <laughs> I used to live in London a long time ago. Wouldn't live there for the, all the tea in China now. Um, Travelling is part of the job uh, and you have to have a, an understanding family and an understanding partner uh and it's also you know unsocial days in a way saturday sunday days when people who have quote normal unquote jobs um you know are off um so yeah there has to be a bit of understanding but i've been doing this for so long now that everybody in in my family sort of works around it um although i'm not the fulcrum of the family at all that is definitely the dog <laughs> um <laughs> In in the last year, obviously there's there's been there's been a certain something going around uh, called called a coronavirus pandemic. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but uh, it's been pretty big. Um, you've had to get used to commentating in stadiums that have been completely empty. Um, mm. So the the atmosphere obviously is has gone. Um, do you do you find some positives in in not having fans in the stadium at, at all no. when when you're there? No, none at all. Hate it absolutely hate it i'm quite used to it because when you do things like the under 20 world cup 
if the host nation aren't playing, there's you know 400 people in a in a big stadium. Um, so I'm one of the few people who actually turns off the artificial crowd noise in their headphones. I don't like it at all. Um, I far prefer to hear uh, actually what's happening. Um, I did a piece with a friend of mine who writes for a lot of newspapers in the United States, and we did about 25 minutes on this subject. And my contribution. <laughs> Uh, from about half a dozen commentators' contributions was reduced to, well, you can get to the toilet quicker at halftime and there's no traffic when you leave, which, which was, a little, you know, not quite what I'd actually said, but, you know, it was a different angle to everybody else, I guess. Um, yeah, the only difference is that you can get away quicker, um, but I really don't like it. Um, this season has been uh, dispiriting in that sense. I mean, I look at Sunday, you know, the last couple of days ago when I was at Crystal Palace Aston Villa Selhurst Park in that second half would have been rocking because Palace were mounting a fight back etc and, and the Palace fans particularly in you know the Holmesdale Road end are absolutely terrific that would have been an amazing place to be at um, but it was empty um, it's not soulless it's a bit I suppose the best analogy it's a bit like watching a band do a sound check ahead of the gig you know they're playing the music but there's not quite that something there. And although the intensity is there on the pitch, uh, I think the FA Cup final showed us what we've been missing in terms of fans being there. I haven't liked this season. I won't particularly look back on it with any fondness. Uh, it's just something to get through, isn't it? You must be looking forward to fans coming back this weekend. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going. Um, that's to be confirmed. Um, but, yeah, it'll be... It'll, it'll be It'll be absolutely terrific. And when, you know, when we get further down the line and we're, you know, half full stadiums, three quarter full stadiums and then full stadiums again, it'll be it'll be just wonderful. It'll be just wonderful. I do hope that we have a little bit more respect for each other when the stadiums are are, are completely full. Uh, I do hope that everybody will appreciate what we missed. And I don't think we'll take anything for granted uh, ever again in terms of attending a football match or a gig or anything like that, um, you know, which involves a, a, a mass uh, of people gathering as spectators. So I, I hope it does signal a bit of a change in terms of um, behaviour, etc. Uh, a football match, you know, it doesn't cost anything to be polite and nice to people, even if they're wearing the opposing team's colours. Um, in amongst your commentary career as well, you, you've also lended your voice to, to voiceovers as well. Um, you know, for, for for adverts and things like that. Um, how did that come about? Um, I was doing the sport of the breakfast show on Radio 5 before it was Radio 5 Live. So this was way back in the early 90s. And it was presented by a guy called John Briggs, who, if you remember the Weakest Link program, John was the guy who goes, Tom has 28 points while Jake has 36, but Rob is trailing on just 12. <laughs> and um, John Briggs talks like that in real life. And he was starting an agency and he said, would you like to join it? Because I'd like I'd like a sports voice. And I went, yeah, absolutely. I've been with them ever since. Um, so you do voiceovers for all sorts of different things. I've, I've literally done things for EA Sports. I've done Andre Agassi's tennis game. Uh, I've done the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, you know, where they want to join the Navy, you know, all that sort of thing. Where they, not, they don't necessarily want the big, deep, gravelly um, cinema voice, you know, coming soon to it to a cinema near you, but just a voice that is um, a little more uh, surging and everything. But there are trends in voiceovers. You know, the, the trend now is to have a very normal voice. So, you know, the voiceover man 
or voiceover woman voice isn't quite in as much in demand as it was. Um, but yeah, you, you can get asked to uh, put your voice on anything. And I've done some adverts for some companies for some products that I would never actually buy myself. But if I don't do it, somebody else would do it. Um, so, you know, I, I did an advert for a, a Sunday newspaper that I would never, ever buy. But with the money from that, I bought a subscription to The Guardian. Because that is a paper that I would buy. You know, so... <laughs> Because if I if I didn't do that voiceover, somebody else would. Um, there are things that I wouldn't do a voiceover for, but you know, I think I think we can all guess what they what they might be. Um, but yeah, most things are fair game. Why not? Somebody wants to pay me. I'm freelance. You know, I have no guarantee of any work uh, coming in at all. So if somebody's going to pay me a bit of money to to say um, this shop is great, or this you know, or narrate a program for a the History Channel or National Geographic, yeah, I'll do it. Would you always want to be freelance or do you reckon you'll get to the stage where you think, you know, I want to kind of sign up with someone and and, and kind of settle into that career, I guess? No, because one, I'm too old uh, and two, I don't think anyone would have me, to be perfectly honest, um, because I am now getting to the stage where I'm one of the old fellas uh, in this game. You know, there are people coming through who who are basically wanting my my. My, some of my jobs and fair play to them because 30 years ago that was exactly me however the difference between now and then was that 30 years ago they were probably four or five people who did football commentary on a national or international basis in this country and now you could probably name 35 people just like that so there are there are a lot of people doing it I, as i mentioned before i was very lucky i sort of moved from radio to television when satellite television was taking off in a big way and so I got those opportunities. I do think it's going to be very difficult for people of your age, for example, to break in uh, now. Um, before I ask my last question, Jake and Tom, you got you got anything to anything to add? Um, how would you want to be remembered in the industry? A nice bloke who was a good commentator. That'll do. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, can't see any doubt in that. Well, that's very kind of you to say so. I mean, and it, I mean, the the thing that I'm doing at Marjon now is actually very rewarding as well because, um, you know, without wishing to sound big-headed, I do have quite a few years under my belt, and it's nice to be able to pass that experience uh, on. Um, the world of media is different to when I was, uh, you know, in my early twenties, but the essence is still the same. If you're a good broadcaster, you're a good broadcaster. What's the story? And how do you sell that story to your viewer, reader or listener? You know, the methods of delivery may have changed, but the actual structure hasn't. And just last one from me, um, for, for people, for, I guess, for young uh, aspiring journalists like ourselves, what is the single best bit of advice you can give to anyone who's trying to break into this industry? Get a lot of experience, even by volunteering somewhere. Don't... Uh, be put off by the fact that you might not get paid for working at a non-league football club or your local rugby club, you know, running their social media accounts or something. Get a portfolio together of things that you've done, whether that's uh, print, whether that's a podcast, whether that's um, stuff that you've shot uh, for TV, because everyone can publish now. You've got your own channels that you can publish on now. Get a portfolio, be a nice person. Um, and if somebody uh, has positive vibes towards you or if you think that somebody might help you say you know 
would you mind if I came in and sort of had a chat with you? Or would you mind if I shadowed you for the day? Or would you mind if I was able to pick your brains for half an hour? Things like that. Because most people will be quite happy to give you some advice. Um, and a lot of particularly uh, non-league teams, uh, no matter what sport you're in, might actually be grateful to you to run their social media things because they won't have a clue. But you do. You know, you're the social media generation. Um, the biggest portfolio that you can have, the better and the most wide ranging, because if you go for a job with five other people and you have a lot of stuff that you have done and you have you can demonstrate that you've done it, then you have an excellent chance of actually landing that job or, or, or that position, as opposed to somebody who, who may have just done a course or just fancies doing uh, that particular journalistic job. Um, if you're a, a rounded individual with a portfolio behind you uh, and you're a nice person, and I, I don't like that word nice, but but it does encompass everything. You know, be nice, be polite, um, because as I say, somebody will come back and go, oh, remember that um, Sheila Smith or remember that Fred Bloggs? They were a nice person. Um, let's get them in because, you know, we've got a two month opportunity here. And who knows, that two months might turn into five years. You never know. All right, John, thank you so much. I know you're a busy man. Um, so I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on to the podcast today. Um, yeah, thank you for listening, everyone. That has been the On The Head podcast with John Roder. Uh, from myself, Jake, uh, Tom and John, take good care of yourselves and goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye. Cheers.